Good morning. How are we doing? Oh, that's good then. Okay, well, look, um, <clears throat> I'm going to speak this morning. Um, the title of my talk is called Don't Waste the Wine. Don't Waste the Wine. That's the stuff you drink, by the way. Yes, I can see that's clearly a, a subject close to many people's heart. And uh, I'd like to read a passage of Scripture from Luke 5. Uh, we're going to start 27 to 39. If you've got your Bibles and you want to get them out, now's a good time to do that. This is the ESV version, so it um, might be as well just to read it on the screen. Okay, so Luke 5, 27 to 39. And this is talking about Jesus. And after he went out, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Sounds like my kind of place. Um, and Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Let's just pray together. Father, I want to pray about this morning. I want to ask you to help me to do real justice to this passage of Scripture. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, speak to your people and that they would be well fed, as it were, this morning by the Word of God. I want to ask you that people will go home having chewed on something really good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I've got a question for you. <clears throat> Who here doesn't like new technology? Yes. Yeah, I bet there's loads more of you. You find it confusing, frustrating, complicated, difficult? Yes, 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 good. Well, you're my kind of people. Um, I, I, do, I do like new technology when it's up and running and working, but it's that process, isn't it, of getting used to it. So you think, oh, this thing. Um, but the day, of course, does come, doesn't it, when even those of us who don't like technology have to buy that new computer, if you're like me, that, that day comes when, when my technology is so ancient that uh, really anything that can support it just has vanished. When, when people who know about these things say, what make? Um, uh, they, who? Uh, or, or it happens when my sons are so embarrassed by the state of the technology. They insist pretty much that I go and uh, buy a new one. And really, very importantly, they might also withdraw their technical support, which is uh, vital. <laughs> 
vital to keep my old system, you know, moving. So the, the day goes out, you go, you go to wherever it is, and you buy the lovely shiny new computer, don't you? And you bring it in, and it's got a lovely screen, a funky curved screen, and, and you put the keyboard down, and there are no bits of old crumbs and biscuits that have been hammered into the keyboard, and it's all shiny and new, and you think, oh, this is very nice. And then, and then you have to go through the installation uh, procedures. You have to install software, don't you? And think, oh, right, okay. So you have to put that in, and then it asks you various questions, and that takes quite a long time to do. And then, and then it wants setup procedures. It will ask you a thousand questions about the colour of your hair and your mother's maiden name, and the, I don't know the, what, you know, how many teeth you've got, or something. I don't know. It just asks you all sorts of extraordinary questions. You think, what has this got to do with anything, really? Anyway, you get there, and you think, oh, thank goodness for that. And then, of course, it still won't quite work, will it? There's a bit that you've forgotten, the missing bit. Have you, you know? And of course, my sons have lost interest, but this time they've gone out. So um, I have to phone up the technical helpline. And I speak to the 16 year old on the other end of the line. And uh, he says, Well, I think what the problem is, is you, you need to add your ZX83.9A dongle doogle doggle. And if you put that into the machine, it will work. And I say, oh, excellent, excellent, thank you, thank you, young man, that's very, very helpful. Uh, well, what is a ZX um, thingy, dongle, whaty? And then there's this sort of, you know, long period of silence, isn't there, on the, when the 16-year-old can't quite believe you've never heard of a dongle, doogle, doggle. And, uh, and you have to ask the question, well, what is it? You, and he says, you don't have one. I said, well... How have you managed to do computing until this point? Well, I don't know, really. I just switch it on and I type, really. That's all I do. Anyway, eventually you go out and you buy one of these things. You think, okay, it's always £195. Okay, I bought £195. You put that in. Okay, and it all files up and it's wonderful. And you think, oh, hey, I'm there. Brilliant. And then, of course, you think, I now need to print something. And you look, and you look with panic because you realise you've got your old printer. And my old printer has never even heard of wireless printing. So it's just got a wire this size, you know what I mean, with, with a big old connector on the end with teeth, and it used to go boom into the back of the computer. And the, the new computer laughs at you when it says, you can't do wireless. No, well, if you really can't do wireless, here is a USB port that you can put your connector into. And I'm looking, this is my connector, and it's got to go into there. And there's that sense of slight panic that grips you. And I think, I've come so far, I can't stop now. I, I, and then just for about a second, you think, if I get hold of this large connector, and I ram it consistently into that USB port, it might work. It might, it might just, somehow the wires might mesh magically into this computer, and then I can print from it. But that only lasts two seconds, and you think, if I do that, I will break everything, and that will be silly. And you just have to accept that old technology does not speak to this new technology. The old and the new will never combine. Now, the reason I've told you that story, apart from just have a bit of a laugh with you, um, is that's like a modern version of the parables that Jesus has told here. He was trying to take things of everyday life, like wine and wineskins, which they would have understood. And he said, look, you cannot combine the old and the new, however much you might want to. So 
One of the questions we're going to have to get to as we're looking through this morning is, what did Jesus mean by the old? And what is this new thing that he's talking about? And why can't you combine them? Why not? So there are all sorts of questions, actually, that, that run through this passage of Scripture. I th- but I thought it would be easier if I just try and break down this passage of Scripture in its entirety. So you can see on the right-hand side there, I've just tried to isolate things. So we start this Scripture with the call of Levi. And we're going to look at the call of Levi because it's a remarkable call. And then as we progress through this passage of Scripture, what do we see? We see growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, that's what one of the things that Luke has begun to introduce us to in chapter 5. We're, he's waking us up to the idea that the ideas that exist in the religious world at the time and the ideas that Jesus has do not seem to fit very well together. There's a clash going on. That's what we're waking up to. And they have these two clashes here, uh, which we'll look at uh, briefly. And then Jesus has to explain why the behavior of uh, his behavior and the, uh, the behavior of the disciples is different. And he explains to them through this uh, wedding guest uh, story. He tries to say, look, this is the season we're in. See, Jesus is the Messiah. It's a, it's a season to rejoice. Fasting is linked to mourning. So Jesus has to explain that. And then he comes on to the, the, these two parables, which I've just looked at. And then really importantly this morning, we really need to look at this last line. Because this last line is very challenging for you and me. And it's, uh, we'll, we'll come on to that as we go. Okay, so that's what we're going to do this morning. That's, let's have a look then at the call of Levi. Now, uh, to, to understand these first two lines, we just have to reference where we were last time. Do you remember uh, Ian spoke? What did Ian speak on last time? <laughs> you made an impression there, pal. <laughs> yes. The paralytic, that's right, he did. Yeah, I'm glad you remember. We'd be in real trouble if you didn't. Yeah, so, and Jesus, in the process of this, you remember, remember Ian's pain because they had to break open the roof, being a roofer, and had to break open his lovely roof and lower this person down, and then this person is healed. And Jesus makes this statement, actually, uh, the Son of Man, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He heals him, and he's raised. Do you remember that? And uh, it's a remarkable example of the grace of God and his ability to forgive. Now, though, he's about to take that ability to forgive the worst of sinners to the next level. Because the Jews would have looked at this man, this paralytic, and they would have said in their head, because this was their thinking at the time, the reason this guy's ill is because he's a sinner. Jesus actually goes on to explain that's not always true later on. But, but in their minds, that's what he's done. So when Jesus heals this man, he has clearly forgiven him. His sins are dealt with. That's what they've just seen. Oh, that's amazing. But Jesus has said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Look what I'm about to do. So if you went out and you asked the average Israelite on the first century, who is the worst of sinners in your mind? 
Who are the scumbags of today? The, the people that use, you know, the worst of the worst, the, the drug dealers, the, 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 the people that prey on el- the elderly. Who, who are the kind of ugh, people that you hate? They would have all said tax collectors. They were held in, you know, in... Yeah, keep your personal thoughts to yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, they were held in um, real uh, just hatred, really, and they were people, as we know, had, were viewed to have betrayed God and betrayed the Hebrew nation. And they did that by ensuring that uh, the Roman soldiers were paid, basically, by extracting taxes. So they were helping Rome keep Israel under the boot. And uh, they were considered, therefore, to be sinners as a result of that. And actually, many of them were thieves, weren't they? They took far more than they need to. So they were really uh, appalling People And now what we're about to see as Jesus comes from healing the paralytic, he walks out and then he sees Matthew, Levi. And he says, I'm going to demonstrate the amazing depth of my mercy and my kindness and my grace. I'm going to take the worst of the worst in your mind. And I'm going to forgive him and restore him. Just extraordinary So here we find, let's just try and get under the skin of uh, Matthew, Levi, a little bit. So here we find him sitting at the tax booth. So presumably that means he's got money all around him. He's got some money because he would have been taking that in. And uh, clearly somewhere down the line in Matthew's life, he has decided to abandon God and turn his back on his people. He's decided somewhere that's a good idea. Uh, he maybe uh, just thought, look, I've got no money, and I want money. Or maybe he just thought, look, the real power is with Rome, the Roman soldiers. Look how powerful they are. That's where the pa- I'm going to side with them. For whatever reason, he has gone in that direction. And uh, I'm sure at the time he thought, well, maybe that's my best option. But I think from these two lines, I think as time has gone on, He has been pondering this stuff in his heart. Now, we don't know exactly what's gone on in his heart, but I wonder if he's just thought, you know, I I have betrayed my people. I wonder if he's thought, I have turned my back on God. I wonder if he's thought, you know, I did this because I'm just greedy. Maybe he thought, uh, look, I'm so rejected by everyone because if they saw him coming, they would walk on the other side of the road. They would have told him consistently, you're a sinner, and I'm not talking to you. Maybe it's just got to him. Maybe he's got to a point where he just feels, I am so dirty. I think there's pain in this guy's life. I think sin has got to him. His name, Levi, means this. It means joined or attached. It should mean this, joined in harmony. That's what his name means. Well, he is not joined to his people or God, and he's certainly not in harmony with them, is he? Not even close. And then Jesus comes out. Jesus knows, I suspect, what's going on in his heart. And this man just knows uh, disgust with himself and a sense of sin sitting on him. And then the king of kings calls him. Jesus, (laughs) that's wonderful. 
Jesus, the King of Kings, says, Matthew, Matthew, follow me. And actually what you see is Matthew immediately responding. In that, the way it's written there, he doesn't, there's no long discussion. He doesn't say, well, I've got quite a lot of money here. I don't want to leave all this behind. No, he gets up from the tax uh, booth and immediately follows Jesus. He uh, it just wants to feel right, I suspect. And what we're seeing there is an example of repentance. When you repent, you change your life. And he has walked away from the tax collector's booth. He is now no longer a tax collector. Actually, that puts him at great risk. Great risk because uh, he would have had the reputation of a tax collector, so would have had the hatred of the people who knew him, and plenty of people would have known him. But now he can no longer call on the Roman state, the Roman soldiers, to come and defend him. So he's really saying, Jesus, I'm prepared to follow you. I believe in you. I love you, and if it costs me my life, I will follow you. That's what he's just said, by standing up and saying, I'll follow you. He's left all his money behind. Extraordinary. Wow. What this shows is that Jesus takes sinners, and he forgives them. Jesus takes sinners, and when they repent, he turns them into saints. That's what's happened to you and me. When you became a Christian, you gave your life to Jesus. Jesus said, I forgive you from your sin. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's the business that Jesus is in. He takes the worst of sinners and he makes them saints. He took you, a sinner, and made you a saint. It's wonderful. I want to show you a video now of a kind of modern day in my mind, a modern-day Matthew, a guy who was the worst of sinners, a guy called uh, Shane Taylor. He was uh, known as one of Britain's most violent prisoners. And uh, let's just see his story. I got in with the wrong crowd, and I started to um, pinch cars, burgle houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high-profile thieves, really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist, and I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out, I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor, and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just... When I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system and I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got to prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed them. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC. It's where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have riot shields and riot gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time. Basically, and I, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an alpha course. Never heard of an alpha course, didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair and I thought, oh no, it's a Christian thing. And we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, 
I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying. And I said, uh, God, I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. And I just... Right there. Because that was a change of my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison and, and trying to tell them about God. I've got um, four kids and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> have Bible studies with a dad, have a life, a beautiful, um, and my life, and it's probably it's my wife and my kids are the best gift, that, apart from the grace God's given me, is the best gift I've ever, he'll ever give me. Didn't expect to cry like that. Recovered now. Stunning, isn't it? Absolutely stunning. And uh, I, I just want to say to you, if you are here and you don't know who Jesus is, and you're looking at that thinking, I don't know what that is, you can have that same relationship with him. And uh, if you would like to, I'd love to have a conversation with you, or Ian would like to have a conversation with you afterwards, have a little booklet for you, love to give you that, and we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian. That'd be wonderful. Okay. Right, somehow we need to move on from that now. <clears throat> So what do we see happening now? Well, uh, uh, Levi is clearly so just like Shane, just so overwhelmed by this new life and this new start that he's been given that he decides to host a party uh, at his home for Jesus. And he immediately invites all his friends, who of course are tax collectors, because no one else wants to know him. And um, what we see is just growing tension. Because uh, what these Pharisees uh, don't see is they don't see a new life, do they? They don't see a person that's been forgiven. They, they don't say, oh, that's wonderful. They just grumble. And they're saying, Jesus, as far as we're concerned, you should not be hanging around with sinners. Because in the mind of a Pharisee, there was a group of people in the world, 
in their mind, not everyone, but it was a, a group of people who did immoral stuff, and they were called sinners. And under the ritual purity laws and under tradition, if you were righteous, you did not hang around with sinners. You put distance between yourself and them. That's what you were meant to do. Jesus has a completely different model in mind, doesn't he? Jesus, you see, the Pharisees see sinners as contagious, like an illness that could affect you, and that would pull you down in terms of your righteousness. Jesus sees himself here, from here, as the physician, the one who can come and heal and restore. So, so the Pharisees are pulling back. Jesus is pushing in. Do you see the contrasting worlds that these two uh, positions uh, that they have? Just totally, totally different way of thinking. And um, <clears throat> we also see a, sort of a similar conflict with the next uh, conflict there when the disciples say, you're not fasting enough, basically. And uh, so really what the, disciples, the Pharisees have just said to Jesus, who is the Son of God, they've just said to him, you're not righteous enough and you're not religious enough. We think we're more righteous and more religious than you are. <laughs> I wonder how that's going to work out for them. So that's the world, the, the worldview that they have, completely different uh, from the, the worldview that Jesus has. Jesus then tries to explain to them, look, I, I'm the bridegroom and my disciples are wedding guests. Uh, and uh, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. The, the long-awaited Messiah. They've been waiting for years for Jesus. Jesus has finally arrived. Now is the time to celebrate, not to fast. So he tries to explain that. And then he tells them these two parables. Really important two parables. And I've obviously tried to give you a kind of a modern version of them. And Jesus uh, basically says, you can't combine the old with the new. Now, I think from what I've explained, we've begun to work out what the old and the new is, haven't we? Have we? Yeah, we've begun to work that out. So the old is now referring to the old covenant. And the new is referring to Jesus, really, the new covenant. So we have two covenants here at work. The, the beginning of the new covenant in Jesus, and we have the old covenant. And what's happening is that these two covenants are clashing. Boom! Like two big tectonic plates crashing into each other. And Jesus is making this... Right, let me just explain something. What is a covenant? Maybe I should just explain that. A covenant is the basis of the relationship between God and man. That's the way in which God and man relate Let's explain the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a system introduced at the time of Moses, and it was a list of requirements that people had to keep in order to be righteous. And if you, the deal was, if you kept the, the requirements or the laws, then God would bless you, and you would be righteous. But if you broke them, you would then be unrighteous, and potentially God would curse you. So your ability to try and fulfill the Old Testament covenant demands on you and your obedience. Sorry, relies on you and your obedience. Are you going to obey or not? And if you don't, you're a sinner. But if you do, you'll be righteous. That's the, the basis of the Old Covenant. 
The new covenant that Jesus introduced is totally different, isn't it? It is based on grace. It means we don't and we can't earn our own righteousness. It's based on his mercy, his achievement, his perfect life and death, and his work on the cross. And under the new covenant, the only way you can be righteous is by receiving righteousness as a free gift from God. Under the new covenant, you can do nothing to earn your righteousness. Do you see how different this covenant is to the old covenant over here where you had to earn it? You had to earn it. But over here, you're given it as a free gift. That's why Jesus, I believe, is saying the old and the new do not combine. They're on a totally different basis. Totally different. And then he obviously gives these two examples, and I've tried to give a modern example to to illustrate that these two. Now, why is all this important? Why is all this important? Why are we talking about this? Well, let's have a look at verse 39, this very last verse. Now, interestingly, it's Luke that picks this one up. In the other version, this isn't picked up, but Luke, the doctor, who's very thorough, picks up this last line and includes it. And it says this, No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So what he's saying is, once you have drunk of the old covenant, this system of earning your own righteousness, you will prefer that system to grace. So what he's saying about humans is this. We prefer law to grace. We like this. This tastes good. You see, old wine is the tasty stuff. The new, new wine's not so tasty. The, the old wine is the, whoa, yes, please. That's a massive comment on humanity. And what it tells us is this. <laughs> good news. <laughs> not really. We're all legalists. A legalist is someone who wants to justify himself through his own actions. I am righteous because of what I have done. It's trying to fulfill the the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Makes you a legalist. (laughs) That's a really important last line. It tells us something about how our own hearts work. Wow. So the, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we trying to combine legalism and grace in our Christian faith? Because he says, you, the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Are we trying to do it? The answer probably is yes. Yes, we are trying to put grace and legalism. Now, what happens if we try and do that? What what has this what these parables told us? It doesn't work. Everything breaks. We just had this example of wineskins, old wineskins being filled up with new wine. What happens to the wineskin? It bursts. And what happens to the wine? 
It's poured on the floor. So in the context of this, if you try and live your Christian life through a framework of legalism, Jesus will be poured onto the floor. <laughs> I was, you know, it's funny when you're working on this stuff, you read this stuff and then something clicks and you think, this is really important. This is really important for us to grasp. Now, you could say, well, uh, was he just talking about the Pharisees in that last line? You know, they were the guys drinking the old wine. They were, they'd grown up under the old covenant. We didn't grow up under the old covenant. Can I just say this? Uh, in a way, you have. We have all grown up under the old covenant. Because how were you brought up? Were you rewarded for good behavior? Were you punished for bad behavior? Right, there's legalism right there. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of the way the world works. And actually, there's, there's, there is some rightness about that. But it just tells us the system. When you got promoted at work, what did you get promoted for? Good work. When you get paid, what do you get paid for? Your work. So it's a contract. That's legalism. I do this. You do that. I work for you. You pay me. That's a form of legalism. So that's why it's so difficult when we become Christians that we, God says, hey, you don't have to do anything. And here is righteousness. We've lived a life that says, what? I would say, but, but that's not how it works, God. The life I have lived tells me that if you give me something, I have to give you something. So that's why we're all desperate to be legalists. You have given me righteousness. Therefore, I must give you obedience. Do you see what I mean? I must now earn this righteousness that you have given me. <clears throat> Ultimately, I guess what legalism is saying is this. Jesus, your work on the cross wasn't enough. I have to add my own righteousness into your work in order to make it okay. Do you see? Because we can't accept grace on its own, most of us. I was reading about, uh, reading about um, a pastor who was talking about this issue um, online. And he just said, what I find, he said, is I find, I think I'm okay. And then I find legalism tucked away in the corners and crevices of my heart. And then they just... Out it comes. Now this is really important because if we are walking as Christians, constantly trying to say to God, you see I'm good enough. See I'm paying you for this gift that you've given me. If we're constantly walking like that, we're walking wrong. We're not enjoying the freedom and the grace that God has given to us. And I think God's heart is to set us free from that. That's the point of this. He's trying to expose something so that we can be free. So that we can walk in the goodness of God's grace. Okay. You're not looking too depressed. I'm pleased about that. So, one of the things I've been trying to do then is I've been saying, okay, so if we're all legalists and we're all trying to earn righteousness from you, even though we know the the scripture said we're given it for free. But if the truth of my heart is I'm trying to earn it, what does that look like in my life? 
It's a good question, isn't it? So what am I doing then to demonstrate legalism? And I've just tried to, um, uh, just tried to think of a few things here. And, um, and I think what you do, if you want to find out what legalism look like, looks like, you look at the behavior of the Pharisees and ask yourself, because they see everything through a legalistic framework, what do they do and how do they behave? And that will give you some clues as to uh, uh, what legalism looks like. And one of the things we notice here is that they love to be noticed. The Pharisees love to be noticed. It says they would make long prayers so that people would look at them and they would say, oh, you must be a very righteous person. Look at that long, impressive prayer. Or they love to sit at the important seats of the banquet to be seen. So I was asking, Lord, why do they do that? Well, they do that for their own benefit because they want to feel good about themselves. If you do acts of obedience or service to feel good about yourself rather than for his glory, you have fallen into legalism. And the Bible would say, that's a dead work. Ouch. Not a good work. I don't want you to get to the day when we stand before Jesus and you have a great big pile of works. And we are meant to do good works, by the way. We're called to do good works. But I don't want you to have a pile of what you think are good works. And Jesus says, you know what? They're all dead works. You did that to feel better about you. So that people would say, aren't you clever? Well done. He said, you, what Jesus would say is, you've received your reward in full at that point. Wow, so they love to be noticed. They love to do their acts of obedience publicly to get the approval of men rather than God. Are you doing your stuff for Jesus? Or are you doing it for you or others? Uh, what else do we see about the um, Pharisees? They lacked love, joy, they lacked life and they lacked passion in their relationship with God. They were obsessed with rules. They loved rule keeping and they ex ignored the spirit of those rules. That's what they did. Uh, they loved to add all sorts of additional rules and commands to God's instruction. They added all sorts of extra stuff in. Do you know how quickly that began? That began with Eve. Have you noticed that? An extra rule. She applies an extra rule to when she, she's uh, talking to the, the enemy after the fall. She says, no, God has said to us, God has said to us, we are not to... Oh, actually, no, thinking about that, that's not right. Scratch that. <laughs> Let's go back to this. <laughs> Exterior performance... And show is more important than the reality of the heart. How you look to others, what the neighbors think, is more important than what I'm genuinely going on in here. It will be very exterior. That's what the Pharisees did. <clears throat> Lots of acts are about self-justification. Uh, other things that they did is that they compared themselves to others. Lots of comparison to others. How am I doing in comparison to that person? And then if you're doing better, you will feel superior. I am better than that person because I do, I do more. 
Uh, they wanted the affirmation and approval of people. And what she put on a show, I've mentioned that. Um, apparently, it can also do this. It can make you feel that you deserve stuff from God. Legalism. Because you'll say, I've done all this for you, God. Remember the, the older brother? I've done all this for you, God, and you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. In other words, you owe me. You, you see, that's how legalism works. It's like a contract. I've done this, therefore you, God, should do that. That's not the basis of the relationship we have with God. We're sons and daughters that are loved. Hello, is this making sense? Yeah, good, okay. <clears throat> or it can, it can mean this. It can mean that you feel that God is never really happy with you. It can make you feel that you're always falling short. And when he looks at you, he says, oh, well, there's potential there, but, you know, you haven't really delivered. It's legalism. Because you don't feel you, you know, anyway, we'll go there. Uh, you can also resent it when others who haven't lived as well as you get wonderful things from God. How do you feel it? Some person who's been a plumbing toe rag has come in and they, they're saying, it's wonderful, isn't it, this Christian thing? I've been healed and there was a miracle and this happened. And you're thinking, I've served for years in this church and I've never had anything like that. God's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, hey, I want to root out legalism in your heart because you've got everything. Nothing is held back from you. Uh, uh, last one here. You'll be bothered about whether things are fair or not. That wasn't fair. That's not right because that's not fair. They got this and they only got that. That's not fair. It's a legalistic way of looking for things. I think that's enough, really. I can see you can't take any more, so. <laughs> well, it, it is half past, so we will stop there. Well, why don't we pray together? Yeah. Lord Jesus, I, I want to thank you that you love us. And I want to thank you that you tell these parables because you want people to be free. And you want to bring liberty and you want to bring truth. And sometimes, Lord, it's really hard to hear truth. Uh, but, Lord, we just say to you again, Lord, would you root out every bit of legalism and self-righteousness that exists in our hearts and every expression of it too? I want to pray also, because this is the answer to legalism. It's to know that the work of Jesus on the cross was complete for you. When he said, when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. You don't have to make that complete. You don't have to prove to God that you're right. Because Jesus has done it on the cross. So Father, I pray right now, right now, for fresh revelation of the power of the cross. Of what was accomplished by your life and death and resurrection and ascension. I want to ask you, Holy Spirit, come freshly... Uh, on us. Let us see the power of, of this, of this, your completed work. And Lord, I want to ask you to strip us, please, from uh, legalism. Lord, I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.